This episode deals with issues of self-harm and suicide. It's meant for mature audiences only. This guy crashed his car into the middle of the thing. It's March of 2017. And he's trying to get anyone to give him a ride. A young woman named Jenny Anderson. And stopping traffic everywhere. Is sitting in stop traffic on Interstate 94, Minnesota's largest highway. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm a little scared. She records on her phone, narrating as a young man shirtless. Oh my God. Okay, she's going to get real. Runs down the middle of the highway after crashing the car he's driving in the median. It's still going. His tires are spinning. He's hopping up on the truck, dude. The man climbs on top of a semi-truck stopped in the right lane. Oh my God, he's seriously on top of this fucking truck right now. Jumping up and down, howling, waving his hands in the air, holding a Bible until police come and take him into custody. Jenny posted her video of the wild scene on Facebook, and it went viral. It even made the evening news in Minneapolis. Lots of questions about this video, now viewed more than a half million times, showing a man climbing on top of a semi-truck near Alexandria, Minnesota. Many wondering, what in the world is he doing? The answer to that question is a complicated story. It's also an all-too-tragic one, with falsified jail records medical neglect, and ultimately, a young life lost. Now this planet no longer has a person who lived by the kind of credo, be quick to love and slow to judge. What was 25-year-old Brett Huber Jr. doing on that Minnesota highway? You know, four days before that, he was working for the United States Senate. I'm A.J. Legault, an investigative reporter in Minneapolis. This is Cruel and Unusual, Episode 5, They Lied. Brett Huber Jr. was a young man who seemed to have it all. Good looks, a great job in the nation's halls of power, a loving, supportive family. He was a son, his dad, Brett Sr. says, a father could be extremely proud of. Brett was a young man with a great heart, um, a super brain, was absolutely a Christian, and lived more that life than anybody I knew. As a kid, Brett Jr. was a straight-A student. By age 11, he was certified as a master scuba diver. At 15, he was a lifeguard. He was a varsity wrestler in junior high. He was just, just a good kid. Brett was always somebody who was looking out for the underdog and willing to be their champion. Very, very proud of him, as you can tell. Brett Sr. worked in politics for 30 years serving as chief of staff for a number of members of the Alaska State Senate. His last post was director of policy and communications for Alaska's governor. As an adult, Brett Jr. followed in his father's footsteps. He was an achiever. Um, Brett Jr. worked for the Alaska legislature for a number of years, including as staff to the House Finance Committee co-chair. Um, Brett helped at nonprofits. Brett was an active volunteer in his church. Brett went on mission trips to try to help after there were floods or natural disasters in the country. He had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and went to work for a United States senator. Brett Sr. says he's talking to us because his son was so much more than a viral video 
on the worst day of his life. Hard to trance kind of juxtapose the young man I'm describing with the young man that Minnesotans know is standing on top of a semi shirtless holding a Bible in his hand with his arms outstretched. Even if you didn't know his background, his behavior certainly that day pointed to having mental issues that needed to be addressed or evaluated, none of which ever happened. Despite all the success in his life, Brett Jr. also had what his father calls a demon. I remember having many conversations with my son and him telling me the largest mistake I ever made in my life, Dad, because his drug of choice was MDMA, it was ecstasy. Um, Not a drug that's going to make you generally violent, a drug that's going to help you feel more, help you connect more. So I think that's probably why that was his drug of choice. Um, He got in the crowd, he advanced in the way he used it, the methods he used the drug. Um, I remember him looking at me and saying, "The, the biggest mistake I made in my entire life, Dad, was ever putting a needle in my arm. At that point, this became just a demon for him. He'd been through rehab, he had family support, he was one of the lucky ones that was able to still have a job, that was able to maintain, that was able to cold turkey and leave the stuff alone. But it was just, it was a constant internal craving. At some point, while living in D.C., working for Republican Senator Dan Sullivan, the craving became too much. Brett's demon again reared its head. It was his choice. I'm not saying he's innocent in this. He made that choice. He turned to that. Um, But once you're in that trap, he tried as hard as he could to extract himself from it. And it was a very difficult trap. In March of 2017, knowing he needed help, Brett Jr. left his job in D.C. with the Senate. His father says he planned to go visit his grandparents in southwest Minnesota before enrolling in a treatment program. But he first made a stop at an ex-girlfriend's house in the Minneapolis area. He left that job knowing that he still was struggling with his addiction and was on his way back to go to treatment. Ran into an old girlfriend of his in the Twin Cities, went on a bender and had a psychotic break. She took him to the emergency room where he was convinced in his mind that they were trying to kill him. Brett Sr. was on the phone with his son, trying to calm him down while he was at the ER. I'm on the phone with my son who's saying, Dad, help me. They're trying to kill me, Brett. They're not. They're, they're trying to help you, trying to have that conversation with him. He obviously um, was not the same kid, was having a mental issue, a psychotic break. This is where everything really goes sideways. According to a police report, Brett showed up at an Alexandria, Minnesota hospital emergency room saying he was high on ecstasy. Staff there planned to take him to detox, but instead he ran, stole a car, drove it into a pond, then stole another car that he crashed on I-94. That's where the viral video picks up. This guy um, crashed his car. As far as the press and public were concerned, that's where the story ended. A crazy guy did a crazy thing and got arrested. But that's not where Brett's story ends. And what happens next? That's the real story. He was denied the type of treatment he needed. uh, And now I no longer have a son. 
Records show Brat was arrested and taken back to the hospital, where he was delusional, worrying that officers were going to chop him up. Instead of being taken for mental health treatment or evaluation, an hour later, he was booked into the Todd County Jail, where he spent the next three months. He was there from March until the time um, he left Todd County Jail on June 9th as a brain-dead young man. And he perished, passed away in St. Cloud, Minnesota, two days later. What happened to Brett Jr. in the Todd County Jail? His family couldn't get straight answers, so hired attorney Andy Noel. Andy and his firm did a great job of uncovering what was hidden. Right away, uh, there are red flags with him that he needs help. This was really, he's a 25-year-old kid uh, who needed help. This is attorney Andy Noel. He never saw a doctor. Once you have a person with either a serious medical need or a serious mental health condition, you are constitutionally obligated to provide care for that person. That's a non-delegable duty that each county jail in Minnesota has is to provide that type of care. Noel unearthed records and video, revealing there were repeated warnings that Brett was mentally unstable and even suicidal. On March 21st, he asked the jailer, why don't you guys just let me kill myself right now? Another day, guards reported he tried to tie a shirt around his neck and made suicidal comments. A month later, he still hadn't seen a mental health professional and was still having hallucinations. He asked to call President Trump, saying people in the jail would hurt him if he could not use the phone. He had another occasion where he... They were trying to get him into a suicide gown, and he he ran away. He kind of skittered away in a manner that that just kind of screamed out, this is a person, his, he didn't have rational thinking at any time he was at the jail. He was delusional. He thought people were trying to hurt him at the jail. When Andy Newell says Brett skittered away, I really can't think of a better way to describe it. The scene is captured on a jail camera. Brett skitters down a hallway, staring strangely at the walls and ceiling as guards follow behind him, clearly exasperated by his bizarre behavior. A jail nurse noted Brett is seeing things, crawling in the hallways. At one point, records show he refused a guard's order to go back into his cell and took off running through the jail. A guard tased him, hitting him in the abdomen and dropping him to the floor. Another time, he took off running. Guards chased him down and locked him alone in a cell. There, he tried to drown himself by plugging his nose and pouring water into his mouth from the sink. His dad has seen this video. When I saw some of the levels of just torturous time that my son had, um, being tased in jail, being drugged across the cell, Um, The kind of things that happen should be, nobody should go through that. Brett Sr. says he was never told about any of this, despite repeatedly asking jail administration about his son's well-being. He'd even taken a leave of absence from his job in Alaska, moving in with his parents in Minnesota, about three and a half hours from Todd County, so he could regularly visit his son in jail. He says during those visits, It was obvious 
his son was in a severe mental health crisis. Brett Jr. was afraid he'd be sentenced to pain camp, where he'd be tortured, and he thought he was going to die. He thought people were out to get him, and God wouldn't forgive him for what he'd done. For everybody out there that thinks that this can't happen to me, um, take a look at Brett, right? A week he's working for the United States Senate, the next week he's on top of a semi um, with a psychotic break, he's in jail, he's not cared for, he is um, not provided any of the assistance he needs for the clear mental health issue he was in. Taking somebody that's in need of medical care that is possible and available and denying that from them makes no sense for anybody. We can't use jails as a storehouse for those folks. And we can't think that it can't happen to us because sadly, I'm here to tell you, anybody, it can happen to anybody. The system is failing us. Despite his irrational behavior, records show it took seven weeks after his arrest before Brett was taken to see a medical provider outside the jail. Brett was finally taken to a local clinic where a nurse practitioner noted he thought the end of the world was coming, that someone was out to kill him, and he admitted to feelings that he'd be better off dead. Brett was diagnosed with a, quote, severe episode of recurrent major depressive disorder with psychotic features, unquote. The nurse practitioner prescribed an antipsychotic drug and noted Brett would likely benefit from a full psychiatric evaluation. That full psychiatric evaluation was never scheduled and never happened. More than a month later, on June 9th, in full view of the cell video camera, Brett spent several minutes twirling his sheet into a noose, then wrapping it around his neck. This video of Brett preparing to and then taking the steps necessary to end his life seems to just drag on and on. It's one of the worst things I've ever witnessed. You can't help as you're watching it, yelling at the screen for the guards to rush in and stop him. The video of the day that my son wrapped a sheet into a rope, put it around his neck, hung it over a door, and laid on the floor to take his life. Yes, I watched that video as well. Um, I wish somebody at the jail that was paid to watch that video would have been watching it because there was ample opportunity in that facility for them to react and save Brett had they performed the wellness check that they were supposed to or they said that they did after the fact, um, I fully believe that I'd still have my son alive and with us today. I watched the video of my son taking his own life. Yes, Brandon, it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, but I felt I owed that to my son. You may have caught Brett referencing a wellness check guards were supposed to do. Under state law, guards are required to check on each inmate at least once every 30 minutes. If the person is known to be suicidal, the wellness check needs to be done every 15 minutes. Clay County Jail records claim those checks happened, but the video attorney Andy Noel uncovered proves otherwise. Your job is to watch them, and they didn't do that. They, if they would have watched him, they would have seen what he was doing before he actually tied the, uh, the sheet around his neck. He was twirling the sheet. 
Um, his, his demeanor was such that it was obvious he was in some sort of crisis. Um, and they just, they just didn't watch him. And to make it even worse, they lied about watching him. They said that they checked on him three minutes into this process of hanging himself when clearly they didn't. And they didn't check on him until about seven minutes after that. So they claimed they checked on him and he actually was already hanging They did. And, and three minutes in to when Brett had the, the sheet around his neck, they said that they checked on him. And obviously they didn't. Jail video shows 10 minutes passed with Brett hanging in his cell before a guard entered and saw what happened. By then, his brain had been without oxygen too long. The Minnesota Department of Corrections, or DOC's review of Brett Huber's death found that Clay County jailers falsified records by logging well-being checks that were not done. In a normal jail, in, in, in a place where people are doing their job, there was an off-ramp to help for my son and my son would likely be here today. The investigation by my team revealed this is not the first time Todd County jail guards have failed to check on the incarcerated people in their custody and then lied about it. In fact, by the time Brett died, Todd County had repeatedly been flagged for lying about doing well-being checks when video clearly shows those legally mandated checks did not happen. This is attorney Andy Noel again. The DOC had told Todd County repeatedly, you've got problems with well-being checks. There's checks that are being fabricated. They're writing down that they checked on someone in a jail log, and there's the video evidence shows completely otherwise, that they weren't checked on. Here's some examples. In 2015, a DOC inspection noted a concern about well-being checks. In 2016, an inspection flagged, quote, significant concern in regard to well-being checks. It gets worse. Just one month before Brett Huber's death, another man died in the jail. In that case, the DOC found two well-being checks noted by guards, quote, neither of which occurred, unquote. You would think all of this would be screaming red flag that the DOC, which licenses and has regulatory authority over jails, would be rushing in to demand fixes before someone else dies. But that doesn't happen in Todd County. I think the DOC has to take a stronger position with these counties if you're seeing repeated, repeated issues with inmate medical care, mental health care, or well-being checks. It's, you know, lives are on the line on that issue. But there was inspections and letters written saying, you need to fix it. Other than that, I don't know what the DOC actually did. I, I didn't see any evidence that they did anything beyond that. Uh, I believe the DOC inspector's name was Greg Croucher. There are inspections from him. There's correspondence from him to the Todd County Jail saying that this, this is an issue that needs to be remedied. DOC inspector Greg Croucher. That's a name we're familiar with. You'll likely recall... He was the inspector who we've previously questioned about all that was missed when Hardell Sherrill died in the Beltrami County Jail. In this case, his inspections were flagging dangerous deficiencies in Todd County. There were letters documenting it, but nothing changed. 
and there were never sanctions against the jail. I asked him about it. You work for what's called the Inspection and Enforcement Unit. Why did it look like there's been plenty of inspection, but not much enforcement taking place? Uh, that's a question I asked myself many times. Uh, I worked for the inspection unit for 13 years. Uh, it kind of got to be the, um, trying to think of the best way to put it. We did a lot of inspecting. We didn't do a lot of enforcement. We found sanctions almost never took place. Why is that? Uh, I guess I don't know if I'd be the best person to answer that uh, because the decision was made at a higher level than us to not enforce it or not um, go forward with a sanction. Did you have cases where you thought sanctions needed to be taken? Absolutely. And what happened? Uh, we would send another letter, typically. When a death revealed inmate check policies being violated in the Roulette County, North Dakota jail, our neighboring state took quick action to temporarily shut down the jail. But in Minnesota, our investigation could not find a single serious sanction against a county jail, no matter how many times they violate state rules and laws, no matter how many people die. We took our questions up the food chain to the man at the top, the state corrections commissioner. Has DOC ever taken action to condemn or revoke the license of a county jail? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, remember, I've been here for uh, just over a year and a half now, and to my knowledge, that has not happened where the DOC has taken that type of, of action. And and I think the, the one question that remains is uh, the extent to which uh, that authority is uh, is there. DOC Commissioner Paul Schnell tells us, despite licensing jails, he doesn't think his agency truly has the authority under the law to take decisive action, such as shutting a failing jail down. He describes his agency as a bit of a paper tiger, but says what our investigation is finding shows that needs to change. I agree with you wholeheartedly that there is, there should, there should, isn't, is and should be deep concern when you, when you uh, see these patterns or, or problems and then have these deaths that where the same factors are at play, um, that, that, has to, that has to get addressed. Jails that aren't performing have to be held accountable. Brett Sr. now believes the state's failure to take decisive action against a jail known to be failing to care for inmates and known to cover it up with false reports is why his son is dead. At their basic core mission, it, 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 it's called the Department of Corrections. It's not called the Department of We Don't Care. It's not called the Department of uh, the Department of, of uh, Lock Them Away and Don't Worry About Them. It's the Department of Corrections. There's there's a need to make sure that facilities that they're using, facilities that they're involved with, are performing at the standards that they expect. Uh, clearly, they knew this jail wasn't performing at those standards. Clearly, nothing was done about it, and it cost a 25-year-old beautiful young man his life that those situations were not corrected. It also cost taxpayers. When Brett and his attorney filed the federal wrongful death lawsuit, Todd County quickly settled, paying out $1.8 million. If you can't find any other avenue 
to expose the actions to try to protect other young people, other people's sons, other people's husbands, other people's dads or moms from going through this same thing, the only way you can get their attention is through their pocketbook. As part of our investigation into denied medical and mental health care behind bars, we found well-being checks not being done on time and, in many cases, records being falsified by the guards happens a lot, especially in suicide cases. I want to introduce you now to my reporting partner on this investigation, Brandon Stahl. Hey, Brandon. Hey, AJ. So as we were investigating the Brett Huber case, you were going through state and federal data about deaths behind bars, and you made a really huge discovery. Tell us about it. Well, as I was analyzing this data, I discovered that the majority of deaths in Minnesota jails over the previous five years were suicides. There have been 56 deaths, and in 34 of those cases, the person in the jail took their own life. Explain why that was such a huge finding for our investigation. According to federal data from the Office of Justice Programs, nationally, suicides account for 31% of jail deaths. But in Minnesota jails, suicide was happening at nearly double the national average. So suicides accounted for about 60% of all deaths in Minnesota? That's absolutely correct. That told us something. Yeah, it told us that we needed to figure out why that rate was so high and what was going on in these jails so that people were being failed so severely time and time again. Brett Huber Sr. told us he just hopes his son's story sparks reforms and changes that keep other vulnerable people alive and gets them the medical and mental health care the law requires. As a fair and just society, we have to do better. Our criminal justice system has to do better. Jails that aren't performing have to be held accountable. Whatever the good people of Minnesota can do to say this is an outrage and it needs to change, I beg you to do that. I want no other father to go through what I did. And more importantly, I want no other human being to go through what my son did. This episode delved into a lot of heavy topics. If you or someone you love is experiencing mental health-related distress, thoughts of suicide, or in a substance use crisis, you can dial 988 to reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, where compassionate, accessible care and support is available. Once again, that number to dial is the three-digit code 988. On the next episode of Cruel and Unusual. So is it a form that men developed itself? I don't remember the specifics of its origin. We discover allegations that the forms used by the state's largest jail medical provider to screen inmates for suicide risk don't do what they claim. They're basically fictitious forms that we're all supposed to believe mean something. I'm AJ Legault. Producers are Brandon Stahl, Steve Ecker, and Gary Knox.